You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Well, it's great to be back on uh, Bede. Um, uh, I'll be uh, doing the uh, talking and interviewing today. Uh, my co-host, uh, Dr. Michael Pullman, is uh, engaged in another venture. And so uh, it'll be myself and our guest, uh, who is Dr. Timothy Scott. Uh, Dr. Scott is the senior pastor of Salem Baptist Church in Florissant, Missouri, right near uh, St. Louis. Uh, earned his uh, PhD, which we'll be talking a little bit about the subject of it uh, in our time together this um, afternoon. Um, at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he also uh, is adjunct professor of philosophy at Missouri Baptist University. So uh, welcome, uh, Timothy, if I may, or Tim. Uh, to our time together at Bede. Uh, Tim is fine, and it's great to be here. Good. Well, we're going to jump right in uh, to our subject. Our subject today is uh, Thomas Scott, and uh, Timothy or Tim has assured me that uh, there is, he's not a relative, as far as he knows, of the 18th century uh, uh, Anglican Bible commentator, uh, Thomas Scott. Um, last week, we talked about John Newton as a mentor uh, in the 18th century, really probably his most outstanding gift. And so that'll come into our story. And so in some ways our, our discussion this afternoon is a continuation uh, from last week in terms of John Newton. So um, Tim, maybe you could tell us who was Thomas Scott um, and how did you come to be interested in him? Well, Thomas Scott was an Anglican minister uh, who lived in the long 18th century. He was born in 1747, and he died in 1821. Uh, he served in a number of capacities in the Church of England uh, as a pastor. He was also a chaplain at the Lock Hospital in London for a period of time, and uh, was also involved in the Church Missionary Society. Uh, my interest in him goes back all the way to my college days when I was in undergraduate school, I went to a, a school that no longer exists, sadly, Northland Baptist Bible College. And in the course of that study, we had to take preaching classes. And one of the requirements in one of those classes was that we would, when in our preparation for the sermons we would do in class, we had to consult a minimum of 10 Bible commentaries on whatever passage it was that we were going to be preaching on. So I literally went into the library uh, trying to come up with 10 sources for my requirements and I stumbled upon um, Thomas Scott's Bible commentary. I had never heard of Thomas Scott prior to that. Um, and there was this old set, uh, the set was at least 100 years old, of his works or his commentary. And so I used that in the preparation of my sermon. Well, in doing that, I enjoyed what I read so much. I thought he was excellent. And so I went online and purchased 
um, the set for myself. I have in my office here, I should have maybe brought it over here. Um, I have a, an 1812 edition, American edition of his commentary uh, in my personal library. I bought it for $100, which was great for the entire set. And uh, I've had that and used that periodically throughout the years. Well, I completed college, went on to grad school, and then later to my doctoral work. And I honestly had not thought about Thomas Scott for a very long period, ever since that class, really. And when I was in the PhD program, looking through uh, what topics I might write a dissertation on, um, I was reading McNeil's uh, book on Christian movements, and uh, he talks about the evangelical movement, which is an interest of mine, and he mentioned Thomas Scott, um, and, and he described him as uh, one of the more influential evangelicals in terms of his personal relationships, as well as his famous Bible commentary. Uh, David Bebbington also describes him as the greatest commentator uh, on the Bible of the 18th century among evangelicals. And so I was kind of drawn to that, and I remembered that I had this commentary set and had used that previously. And so that sparked an interest in trying to find out more about this man, because I really didn't know even at that point a whole lot about him. And so one thing led to another and ended up writing my dissertation on him and uh, found him to be a rather fascinating character. What was the uh, dissertation focused on? What area of uh, Scott's um, uh, ministry, teaching, life? Well, Scott, if, if anyone's heard of him before, they would have probably known him for either the force of truth, which is his conversion story, or from his Bible commentary. Uh, and I wanted to go a little bit different direction with that. And I focused on his missions con contribution. So my dissertation was Thomas Scott and Evangelical Missions. Uh, Scott was the first secretary of the Church Missionary Society. And I believe among Ang Evangelical Anglicans, something of a missionary pioneer uh, in terms of the modern missions movement. Uh, there wasn't a lot going on uh, among Anglicans in terms of missions, uh, at least of, among the evangelicals. And so Thomas Scott was one of the forerunners in getting that going. He became the first secretary of the Church Missionary Society uh, and late, later also was essentially uh, running a seminary out of his own home, training missionaries for the Church Missionary Society. So I looked at his contributions specifically in that area. Uh, it's something that is lesser known uh, about him, but it's something that I think was rather a significant contribution. Uh, he was also one of the uh, catalysts in starting uh, the British and Foreign Bible Society, uh, which uh, to this day in, in various offshoots um, has been a blessing on getting Bibles around the world in various languages. And so he's played a part in things like that. He did it. He was involved in some Jewish missionary work um, as well in London. And so I focused in on uh, particularly how he did that in an Anglican context, um, which I could talk more about if we want to, and some of the tensions involved in being Anglican and evangelical. Uh, but that was the focus of my work. Okay. So the Church Missionary Society, that uh, postdates uh, the Baptist Missionary Society. Are there links between the two? Uh, that is correct. So as the modern missions movement was taking off, uh, the Baptists, in terms of formal societies, uh, were the forerunner in 1792, uh, created the Baptist Missionary Society with Andrew Fuller and then William Carey eventually going uh, to the mission field and others soon thereafter. Uh, that was a Baptist organization, obviously, and Thomas Scott was an Anglican. And so he had a very favorable 
opinion of the Baptist Missionary Society. In fact, was friends with Andrew Fuller, with William Carey, with John Ryland Jr. Uh, and so he wished them all well, but obviously as an Anglican, uh, there would be some reservations of being a part of that formally or directly. And as the missionary movement kind of began and, and progressed, a few years later, you had the London Missionary Society that was established in 1795. Uh, that was an interdenominational organization. It did have some Anglicans in it. It had some Congregationalists and some Baptists even, and perhaps a few Presbyterians. Um, but the problem, as Scott saw it at least, was and some of his co co-workers, co-laborers, the official position of the London Missionary Society was that they would not have a formal doctrinal statement for their missionaries or for the mission stations that they were going to plant. So they would send missionaries to various places, again, being interdenominational. They didn't want to take a decided position on denominational topics. And the thought was that they would get to the mission field, teach the Bible, and then kind of let the converts decide what kind of church they want to be. But the, the problem, if you were a committed Anglican, was that did not appeal to you um, as someone who was committed. Uh, Thomas Scott was a confessional Anglican, believing in the 39 articles. And so he didn't really appreciate that missionary model. And so they didn't throw their weight in with that. Well, was um, he involved years at later, all with the, the LMS? The London Missionaries? Uh, yes, he was. Uh, he did preach some annual sermons for them, uh, but just as a guest speaker, mm -hmm. uh, not heavily involved uh, on a day-to-day -day operation. Uh, while the one thing they did do while he was the church missionary secretary, uh, the London Missionary Society had a disaster uh, where they had sent a ship known as the Duff uh, that was carrying missionaries and supplies to um, I forget the field now, but they, they were on a voyage and the, the ship was attacked by pirates and the ship was looted and all the missionaries were uh, captured. And it took a long time. Most of them finally did eventually come back to England after uh, just a terrible experience. Uh, but when that happened, uh, the, the leaders of the Church Missionary Society felt very sorry for uh, the London Missionary Society, and they took up a collection uh, to try to help them out and re uh, reimbursing some of the, the funds that were lost there. Uh, but beyond that, um, he, he was not involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the London Missionary Society. Um, he didn't really agree with the mission philosophy, and that uh, was a major impediment to his uh, long-term investment in that particular organization. Yet he was evangelical, um, so he did have links to other evangelicals, and yet obviously firmly Anglican. How did he reconcile his uh, kind of Catholic Catholicity in terms of his links to other evangelicals, uh, his working with them? How did, did he work with other evangelicals outside the Church of England in any capacity? Yes, he did. Um, and, and I think that uh, he, what, what was important to Thomas Scott, while he is a confessional Anglican, he also believed very strongly in the universal church. And so he was not of the opinion that his denomination was the only Christian denomination. He believed that uh, this Prote particularly Protestant uh, denominations, other Protestant denominations, as long as they were preaching the gospel um, and had a commitment to scripture, he could fellowship with them and have very good friendships. Uh, he had very deep friendships with 
uh, Presbyterians and Baptists. Uh, he had a friend in Scotland who was Presbyterian that he wrote an extensive correspondence uh, with him throughout his life. Um, he interacted with the Baptist, uh, had a very close friendship with John Ryland. Um, and so he was uh, first and foremost an evangelical, uh, but he believed in the way he articulated it was he thought that the Church of England most closely represented what the scriptures taught. He did believe in ha- the, the, the benefits of having a state church, an Episcopal church. And so he was quite content to stay there, although there were times where he had had a a crisis of conscience, at one point almost became a Baptist, um, but he decided that the Church of England's teaching was, in fact, scriptural. Um, But I think what what allowed him to participate in these other organizations was that he did believe uh, that the the true Church of God consisted of all those who had put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that goes beyond uh, denominations. Uh, One of his favorite metaphors to describe the church of God was an army. And so he thought of the, the, the arm, a a bit, a grand army. And he would say that in any typical army, there would be divisions within that army. So you'd have uh, perhaps airborne, well, of course he wouldn't think in those terms, but you have naval units, you have infantry units, you have various divisions that are under different commanders, different generals. And he said, that's really how the, the church of Jesus Christ is that, uh, we're all fighting in the same war. Uh, we're all on the same team, uh, but we have different subunits that are involved in various aspects of that conflict. And so he was. There was a common mission, a common goal. As you're fighting a war, all the units want to see victory for their side. Um, but he also understood that there is something of unit pride, so to speak, and they have their different um, quirks or different specialties. And so uh, he believed that was actually a good thing. Uh, for the advancement of the gospel. Uh, He didn't believe that any one denomination uh, would be able to do all of the work that needed to be done to reach the globe. And so he was quite happy to uh, have friendly relations with those who were laboring, perhaps even though a different denomination, he thought of them like a different division in the army and that they could all work together for a common good. So his commitment to Anglicanism, was it... uh... What was critical there? The state, the idea of a state church, um, infant baptism, episcopacy, all three? Well, a combination of all three. Uh, part of that arises out of the his conversion. And of course, he grew up, he grew up Anglican. So part of it is he that was what he had known his entire life. Uh, he was born in a small town called Braytoff in Lincolnshire, in, uh, the northeast corner of England. And he, he had grown up in the Church of England, and when he went into the ministry, he was ordained in the Church of England. Uh, he did have a crisis of conscience while as a pastor in the church, uh, but was able to eventually resolve that. But as he was uh, going through ultimately what is, was his conversion, uh, he did a great deal of reading in the Protestant reformers in the Church of England, uh, men such as Cranmer uh, and uh, also uh, heavily involved, influential in him was Richard Hooker uh, and some of his writings uh, and the 39 Articles. Uh, so he viewed himself as an Anglican, and especially in the sense of the Protestant reformers expression of that. Uh, so I, I, w- I think he, he when he's debating, in fact, other people within the Church of England who were more broad minded, uh, more liberal, perhaps, um, in their theology. He was appealing back to the Reformers, to the 39 Articles. Re- he was well-read 
um, in those early writers, particularly Cranmer and others, that uh, he, he resonated with what they taught and he uh, believed that the, what they taught was scriptural uh, by and large. And so he was uh, Anglican eventually by conviction. Uh, he came to, I think the key issue for him was the infant baptism. That's what almost drove him out of the church. And uh, he, he looked at it uh, eventually in the classic way, I guess, of uh, baptism had replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant in the new in the new covenant era. And so once he kind of got that settled in his mind, he saw that there was no reason to leave the Church of England. Uh, it was he, he said it had imperfections. He wasn't claiming it was perfect, um, but he believed its general theology and it was not forcing him completely out. Uh, for his his beliefs. And so as long as he could um, operate within the founding documents of the church, he was content to stay there. He believed every denomination had its problems, that not any one of them could say they were precisely scriptural. And so uh, the, the Church of England clo most closely fit what he wanted. Um, I think episcopacy was a secondary issue for him. Uh, in Later on, the, that became a big issue among evangelical Anglicans. And there's a book that was published of letters from different Anglican ministers uh, defending why they were in the Church of England. And he talks about episcopacy, but he does say that it's advantageous, essentially, but it, it wasn't necessary. And he appealed to the, the reality that the very first churches in the book of Acts were not part of an episcopacy. So for him to say that was a, an essential form or part of Christianity, he said, would be to go beyond the New Testament. So it, it was important to him in the sense that he felt that much like the kings in the Old Testament, David and so forth, the Hezekiahs of the Old Testament, who were able to uh, bring about great spiritual reforms throughout a nation. He thought that a Christian king uh, with an episcopacy in place could do similar things. And so he thought there was a value to it. Uh, but if it was taken away, I don't I don't think that it would have been um, just a, a core element of his of his faith necessarily. So critical then would have been uh, infant baptism, which he saw as the sign of the, you know, the New Testament sign of the uh, continuation of the Old Testament sign of circumcision. And then the establishment of the church, the fact that it was a state church, obviously sounds like it was critical for him as well. Yes, I mean, both of those things were important. I think the de decisive issue that was the infant baptism and uh, the Episcopy would have been more secondary. Okay. Now, he, he has a relationship, does he not, with John Newton? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Since, we, as I said, we, we talked about Newton last week as a mentor. And um, at one of his uh, charges, um, Thomas Scott lived quite close to, to Newton in Olney. Uh, is, that not, is that not the case? Uh, that is very much the case. Uh, so I should, probably should back up a little bit and tell a little bit of the backstory with Thomas Scott's life. He was born in Braytoff in Lincolnshire. Uh, his father was Anglican, but was a Socinian in theological perspective. So what that means, at least in part, was it was a, his father denied the Trinity and denied the full deity of Christ. And Thomas Scott, as a child, drank that in. Uh, his father had a, a commentary that was written by a Socinian author. And as Scott was learning and starting to show an interest in uh, ministerial endeavors, uh, began to read that commentary and just took it in hook, line, and sinker. 
So the irony is that as Scott uh, was pursuing Anglican ministry at the time that he entered the ministry, he did not believe what the Church of England taught. Uh, he was in direct conflict with the 39 Articles um, and with the creeds of the church, uh, the, the Athanasian Creed in particular. He, had, he just loathed it. And so you had Scott uh, going into the ministry, what, at least from an evangelical perspective, not even being a Christian uh, or really in any historical sense, uh, it, hard to claim Christianity and be a denier of the Trinity. And so it, it's actually quite interesting that when he was ordained, when he late, later wrote uh, about that, he talks about his ordination. And if I can quote him uh, directly, he says, speaking of his the day that he was ordained, he says, and thus after some difficulty, I continued with a heart full of pride and all manner of wickedness, my life being polluted with many unrepented, unforsaken sins, without one cry for mercy, one prayer for direction or assistance in, or a blessing upon what I was about to do, that is to go into the ministry. And having concealed my real sentiments, the fact that he denied the Trinity, didn't believe in the deity of Christ, under the mask of general expressions, after having subscribed articles directly contrary to my then belief, the 39 articles, and after having blasphemously declared in the presence of God and of the congregation, in the most solemn manner, sealing it with the Holy Supper, the Lord's Supper, that I judge myself to be inwardly moved by the Holy, Holy Ghost to take that office upon me. And then he says, not knowing or believing that there was a Holy Ghost. And so he takes orders and is ordained. This is in 1772. He's ordained into the ministry denying the faith, essentially, denying the Church of England's doctrinal statement. He said he believed the doctrines, but he really didn't. And so when he was ordained, though, he took up a parish, actually a combined parish, approximately five miles from Olney, which is where John Newton was ministering. And so he was pastoring several different churches. There was a chapel in Gayhurst, in uh, Stoke Goldington, um, and a couple of other little areas that were all in this, this small area. And he was pastoring three churches actually at one time. Uh, but it was providential in that it moved Scott away from his Socinian father and did put him in within riding distance, e fairly easy riding distance of John Newton. Well, the two men were obviously of much different theological persuasions um, at the time. Newton, by that point, was a committed evangelical. He had been converted uh, and had gone, of course, into the ministry. Um, and so what took place then, because they were in close proximity, there was a, a, an apothecary who conducted business in these little towns, and he had heard John Newton preach, and he was traveling through uh, the parish area where Thomas Scott was ministering. And he went to Thomas Scott, and he said, hey, you really should go hear this uh, this man that's preaching over here in Olney. And he heard a little bit about uh, what John Newton was. He found out that he was an evangelical. And Scott at that point despised evangelicals. Uh, they were the Methodists. They were radicals. They were um, just completely crazy. And so uh, he he didn't think highly of them at all. Uh, and But what he decided eventually to go and to hear uh, Newton preach. 
And so when he did that, it's, it's actually quite comical what took place that day. Thomas Scott walks into the church there in Olney, and Newton gets up in the pulpit. And the text that Newton selected that Sunday was from Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it in the, in the King James Version, which is what it would have been read in the pulpit that day. It says this, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. And this is about a heretic. Uh, that was there in the early church. And he said to this man, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? That was the text that Sunday. And the funny thing was Thomas Scott believed that Newton had seen him come into the church and had selected that specific text to preach against Scott because Scott didn't believe the fundamentals of the faith. And so he got offended and was uh, upset with Newton. And uh, later he found out that Newton had no idea that he was actually there. But I believe that the Lord was working because that text did prick his conscience, even though Newton had no idea what was really going on in Scott's life at that time. Well, a little while later, uh, Newton, actually, it wasn't even a direct encounter. So Scott, again, being a fairly new pastor, not of an evangelical perspective, had a couple in his church that was deathly ill. And so uh, Scott was, he didn't want to be a bother to this couple. They were literally on their deathbeds. And he said that, well, I, I wouldn't go visit them, uh, and I didn't care for them in a pastoral way at all until right when one of them had passed away, and he finally made a visit. Well, when he got there, he, he found out that John Newton had actually gone and visited this couple and ministered to them while they were on their deathbed. And even though Scott at this point still was not an evangelical, and he had a negative opinion effectively of Newton. He said, well, the one thing I know about John Newton is that he's a better pastor than I am. And he, and he came to the conclusion that whatever his radical beliefs might be, he did a better job for, of caring for this family in my church. That I, They're in my church, and I didn't go visit them. And so he made a point from that point on to uh, be a better pastor. And so he started reading uh, some, some other Anglican writings uh, on how to be a, a Gilbert uh, Burnett. Uh, on being a pastor and pastoral care. And so he started becoming a little bit more committed to caring for people and, and being concerned about that. And so Newton had helped him there. Uh, but there's one other uh, ma major point in this story that is of interest. In 1775, uh, of course, the, uh, the parish of Olney and where Scott was ministering nearby is in Buckinghamshire. And there was a clerical meeting that took place. And so all the pastors kind of came together uh, for this meeting, and they were having a dinner, and Newton was there, and Scott was there, and several other men, and they got into a heated theological argument. Of course, Scott at that point, not a conservative evangelical by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, Newton was, and so he and Newton got into something of an exchange, arguing over, I think, as best I can tell, matters related to the Trinity and the 39 Articles. Well, so what Scott did then was he decided to take up a, a correspondence with Newton. And in his arrogance, he thought, well, I'm going to write to this Methodist and I'm going to deliver him of his delusions. I will use reason and argument uh, to help him see 
uh, that his understanding of things is just insane. It's crazy. And so he he initiates this conversation with Newton in order to convert Newton to his position. Well, so Newton gladly takes up the uh, exchange, starts writing letters to Scott, and Scott would just go on these long diatribes about how the Athanasian Creed was horrible and it had all these unscriptural statements in it. And then Newton would write back in just a most caring and pastoral way and just say, you know, I, I used to believe the same things you did or you do. He said, but I believe that you're on the right track. And he'd very calmly say to, and Scott was just offended by it. He would say, I once believed where you are. And I believe that one day you will believe like I do now. And he just very gently would give him the gospel and would uh, nudge back at him, try not to engage him too much. And through that, Scott was just baffled um, and bewildered. Um, he could, and was very frustrated with Newton. And so he ended up by the end of 1775, uh, their relationship was actually quite strained. Uh, Newton had uh, offended him <laughs> repeatedly. Um, and Newton actually, toward the end of the year, had written him three letters that Scott never answered. Uh, and, and the conversation just ended. Uh, but it does appear that that set in motion Scott searching. And that's what Newton did seem to recognize, that there was something in Scott. Scott was searching, searching for the truth. And to Scott's credit, uh, he began reading uh, the, the Anglican Reformers. He was reading scripture uh, frequently and genuinely searching. And over the next couple of years, uh, by 1777, uh, he had come to a Protestant understanding of justification. And then he came to recognize that it was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that had taken away all of his sin. Scott was under the impression that God would basically just accept us if we tried hard enough, that we were sincere. Uh, but it was Newton who uh, challenged him on that and, and basically said, no, it has to be a work of God's spirit in your heart. And there's absolutely nothing that we can bring uh, to the table that God will accept us on other than uh, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, it, it's probably too much to say that Newton led him to Christ, but Luke, Newton was definitely a major player uh, in what it was a, a several year process of Scott uh, turning from his Socinianism, his anti-Trinitarianism uh, to a full understanding of the gospel and, and all those doctrines that he eventually did hold. Uh, Scott Newton would then go on and be friends the rest of their lives uh, uh, Scott was um, the man that Newton wanted to replace him in Olney uh, when he left for London um, in well, 1779, 1780. Uh, he eventually did pastor in Olney and then eventually went to London himself. So uh, they were lifelong friends and Newton did play a major role in his conversion. Now, how do we know most of what you've just described here? Letters? Um, is there anything else in terms of diaries? Uh, did Thomas Scott keep a diary? Newton did. Um, I'm not sure how much Newton mentions Scott, but did Thomas Scott keep a, keep a diary, a journal? If he did keep a journal, it's not extant. Uh, but in uh, John, John Scott, which was Thomas Scott's son, in the biography, Scott had written something of a memoir. And so there are, there are extensive sections in that that tell the story. Um, but the, the most easy way to, to hear the story is, is by Thomas Scott's book, The Force of Truth, uh, which was published in 1779 at John Newton's request. Uh, in fact, William Cooper, 
the the hymn writer um, helped edit that to some extent, and Newton was involved in that. Uh, and so in The Force of Truth, Scott tells this story, and that uh, was published, like I said, in 1779, so roughly two years after Scott had been uh, had undergone his evangelical conversion. And that book was kind of a bestseller. Uh, in the 18th century, there were a number of uh, famous conversion stories. Well, Newton himself, uh, his story of how he had been a slave trader and involved in all that and how he had come to Christ uh, was, of course, something that was would have been well known. And Scott, uh, in the same vein, tells the story of how he had gone from uh, being a Socinian and all of that and Newton's part in in his conversion, he tells that story. Uh, there are also letters. Uh, in fact, I'm in the process of hopefully compiling the correspondence between Newton and Scott in the year 1775. I've actually got it laid out and I'm editing those letters uh, and trying to put them together, which will be the first time ever uh, that we've seen them since Scott and Newton exchanged them. Now, the letters that Newton wrote to Scott are available in Newton's works. Uh, so you, those have been published. Uh, you can get them at Banner of Truth uh, in the works of, of Newton. Uh, but Scott's half of the correspondence has never been published. And so uh, where did, where did you find that? Together, where did you find? I'm sorry. Where did you find that? Uh, they are in the Lam Lambeth Palace Library ah, in London. Okay. In London. Um, and so uh, his letters uh, are what, what I've done is arranged them in a chronological order. So you can actually read them in the order that they were sent back and forth. And it makes for uh, quite interesting reading. And you, you really get a window um, into, I think, both men in a way that you don't always see. Uh, Scott was witty uh, in the exchange. And some of the things that he, he says uh, <laughs> to, to Newton are quite funny. Um, and then Newton um, displays just tremendous pastoral tact. Um, and how he handles Scott, who's clearly agitated at Newton um, on multiple occasions. I mean, you can just you can just hear, you can read uh, Scott's frustrations and then hear Newton and how he very carefully responds to him. Um, it's quite fascinating. So the, the, the three sources really for the for this story are, are the biography on, on Scott, um, the force of truth and the letters that are extant. Um, that reveal the conversation that Newton and Scott had. And how far along are you in terms of getting these letters edited and published? Uh, actually, fairly far. Uh, I I sent you a copy of where I'm at on that, actually, so you can take a look at that. Um, I've got the letters typed up. I've uh, been putting footnotes in them. Uh, I have a conclusion written uh, for it to tell the rest of the story. Um, and then uh, I'm working on the headings to introduce each letter so that it tells kind of a story. Um, I, I, I've yet to write the introduction completely, but it's uh, it's getting there. So I, I'm really not that far away uh, from it being in a, a a complete format that would be readable to, for people. Now, beyond that, I mean, what is available of uh, Thomas Scott's written corpus today? The Force of Truth, is that still in print? The Force of Truth is the only volume that I know of that is formally in print. Mm. Uh, there are some editions of Scott's commentary that you can get in modern publication, but they are mixed, typically mixed in with Matthew Henry. So Thomas Scott's commentary is very similar to Matthew Henry in terms of style. 
and so what has happened over the years is there have been additions of a commentary that would include uh, Matthew Henry and Thomas Scott in, in kind of a, a mixed format. So you can get uh, some of Thomas Scott's commentary in that, but it's also partially Matthew Henry. Uh, you can go on Amazon and order print-on-demand um, editions of most of Scott's published works. So they are available, um, but there's not a publisher that I'm aware of that's currently publishing those. Okay. And as we come to a close, uh, why do you feel Scott is important for us today? Um, obviously, he was a vital figure in his own day as a Bible commentator, had a remarkable conversion out of uh, really infidelity, um, um, Unitarianism into a, a Trinitarian faith, the faith of of uh, the scriptures, but why, why would why would you recommend somebody to read him today? Um, you mentioned at the beginning Bevington, you know, very important Bible commentator. Um, but what would what would be your kind of parting word at this point on on Thomas Scott? Why a why a listener would would want to read the Force of Truth or something like that? Sure, I, I'll answer it in quick three parts, if I may. Uh, the first one is I think that the conver conversion story itself is inspiring. Um, it, 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 though it is not as well-written as Augustine's confessions, uh, Daniel Wilson, um, who was a contemporary of Scott, a famous uh, missionary bishop, eventually the Bishop of Calcutta, uh, did compare it to the confessions um, as just one of the classic conversion stories in Christian history. And, and I think that in an age like ours, uh, where often we think that people who are naturalistic or at least heavily rationalistic in their perspectives, we might think of them as lost cases, uh, people who you just would not expect to come to Christ. And Scott was heavily rationalistic, um, and yet um, through his reading of Scripture and the admonition of men like Newton, uh, he was eventually led to Christ. And, and I think that story is, is is impressive and it is still inspiring today. Um, and I find great encouragement uh, that God can transform lives. And I'm a pastor myself. And for us to have stories like that, um, that people that you wouldn't have thought, well, if anybody wasn't going to make it, that's that, that, that guy. Um, and yet they could still come to Christ um, and become then one a, a very influential figure uh, for Christ, I think is worth reading. Uh, Scott had a very, secondly, a, a very high view of Scripture, and everything that he did was just um, governed by Scripture. And so his Bible commentary is one example of that. His passion to see the Bible uh, translated in multiple languages, taken to different parts of the world, is something that we can emulate. I, by the way, do believe that his commentary is still valuable. Uh, and I do use it in my sermon preparation uh, from time to time. Um, what is nice about it is it not only has an exposition of a text, it also has some practical application sections in it um, that can be of great use to a pastor in formulating a sermon, especially in trying to think of ways that it might apply uh, to the congregation. Uh, lastly, I would say that Scott is memorable uh, or is always encouraging to me is that he is in many ways a guy who never was the smartest guy in the room necessarily, never was a wealthy person. Uh, in fact, he died in practical poverty. 
Uh, I didn't get to tell all the story of his life, really, but he was someone who never sort of arrived at any point, um, never had the, the benefits of um, high society or any sort of uh, independent wealth. Uh, in fact, his own father cut him out of the will <laughs> uh, because they had a big falling out. Um, goes into the ministry, doesn't even believe the gospel. Um, but then after his conversion, through just really determination and hard work um, and just sticking to things. Um, when he was the secretary of the Church Missionary Society, he left the society as a secretary. There wasn't a single missionary that had gone out to the field. But he believed so strongly in the cause and that God would over time bless it that he, he viewed much of his ministry as planting seeds that would eventually one day grow and become a great oak tree. And I just find that inspiring as someone who's not necessarily uh, the smartest guy in any, any given room or, or someone who's never had um, a great money or wealth or anything, but just that inspiration of if you work hard for the Lord and you're faithful, uh, that the Lord can use that in a tremendous way. And even if it just seems small, like you're planting seeds, you never know uh, what will happen. And, and what I, one of the things that I mentioned in my dissertation is that Thomas Scott was one of the founders of the Church Missionary Society. And while he was secretary, they never even had a missionary. Um, but 200 years later, the Church Missionary Society still exists. And there's an offshoot of that that's a little bit more conservative uh, called Crosslinks that is still sending missionaries to the field today. But if Scott and others like him had quit, uh, when it seemed impossible, uh, those things would have never taken place. And so I think that what you have, he's not as famous as John Newton. He's not as famous as William Wilberforce. He's just a regular guy who was faithful. And I think that uh, that speaks uh, or that leaves a tremendous legacy uh, that is inspiring uh, to me, at least. And I think it could be inspiring to many others as well. Well, you'll need to write his biography after you get the letters out and um because I think you're right. I think it's very important for, you know, for most Christians to recognize that uh, God uses um, faithfulness and uh, kind of an obedience in the a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson once put it. Um, just plugging away. I mean, Carey called himself, "I'm I'm a plotter, and that's what I can do." And it sounds like uh, Thomas Scott was had that same sort of fiber in terms of his person. Well, this has been great. Um, Thomas Scott, we've been talking about Thomas Scott, who uh, 200 years ago died uh, this year, um, uh, 1821. And uh, we wish you, uh, brother, the best as you not only are involved in pastoral ministry there and teaching, but also involved in uh, getting uh, Thomas Scott's witness better known in our day. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, those of you who will be listening to uh, next week when uh, Dr. Pullman will return and we'll again be thinking and reflecting on an element of church history. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.